At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hey everyone, it's Kristen. This week, we are not doing a regular Genius Recipe Tapes episode. We are doing a special episode of Counter Jam, our podcast about food and music and culture with host Peter J. Kim. And this is because as you've been listening along, you know that I have been working hard on the manuscript for the Genius Beginners cookbook, and I need some time to finish up that. And I have been loving, as I do it, listening to Counter Jam and listening to all of Peter's guests and his own reflections on all of these things. So I have Peter here, and he is here to tell us more about this episode. Hi, Peter. Hello, Kristen. Good to have you. Or sorry, thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm so used to being the host, and then so funny. You know, that's that is the thing about these episodes is one of the things that I feel like it's it's doing for me right now is that it's sort of recreating. The idea of going to a fabulous dinner party with like a really great playlist and a a really like interesting set of people at at the dinner party sharing experiences that I don't have and something that we haven't really been able to do at all in the last year. So um, anyway, that's that's just an aside about the entire podcast. But uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that before we dive into this specific episode. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Kristen, because I hadn't necessarily quite thought of it this way but it's true like i mean in a way it is an uh, a podcast embodiment of i would say my dream evening which is generally mm -hmm. speaking having friends and loved ones over sitting around a table letting the wine flow you know eating and just like letting the conversation go and then after and listening to music along the way of course and then afterwards a lot of my friends are musicians uh segueing into like a jam session and mm -hmm. uh, playing music together. And to me, like, that's just like the perfect evening. And uh, I, I hope that there's even the slightest, slightest uh, feeling of that uh, in the show. There definitely is. And it's something that I think I've been missing and all of us have been missing. Just some some sort of connection to, to people and to new, new things, um, new things and new shared experiences, too. Like, you know, finding out that we both love a certain kind of food or learning about a new kind of food, all of that is just really hard to do this year. And it's helping to look forward to when we can do it more again. So for this episode, um, you know, this this felt like kind of the most emotional episode of um, of the podcast so far. And um, I really appreciate that you tackle that and that you can go from even in a single episode, um, you know, joking about like how annoying catcalls are with Yumi Nakashima to talking about Japanese internment camps in World War II and how those things can sort of connect and, and, and you know, that they're all 
worth talking about and worth exploring. And I don't know, if, do you have any feelings on that, like h- how you wanted to approach topics from from weighty to light in your podcast? Yeah, you know, um, often the way the show sort of works is I just will interview guests and then afterwards kind of find the themes that emerge from it. And in this case, uh, it struck me at a certain point that I had three guests. One uh, was a guest who immigrated to uh, Canada herself, Yumi Nagashima. Another was a guest who whose family, whose parents immigrated to North Carolina, and that's G. Yamazawa. And then there's another guest whose family had been in the U.S. for multiple generations, and that's Dan the Automator. And what I found so interesting, and, you know, take it with a grain of salt, because I think of the guests and the viewpoints expressed on the show generally to be data points that nobody should ever say, like, oh, now I understand the Japanese-American identity from this. But I did find it interesting to see and contrast the perceptions of their culture uh, going along that spectrum. You know, in Yumi's case, she is still holding on very closely to Japanese culture, where she still thinks of, like, Canadian sashimi as being this awkwardly large thing that people shouldn't be dunking into soy sauce. In G's case, he grew up eating teriyaki chicken, loves it. You know, it's not, like, something that defines him, but it's a comfort food that he keeps coming back to. And then in case of Dan... He didn't really grow up eating Japanese food as much. And when we dug into it, it was it, he hypothesized that it was resulting from the internment camps and Japanese Americans suppressing their cultural identity after the, the horrific experience there. And so I had, when I had that kind of aha moment, I realized it, there was this really interesting continuum. And I, I think you know this episode um, really, uh, for that reason, had the most... Uh, interesting takeaway of any of the episodes in season one. Yeah, I it was incredibly poignant. And I think the moment that stuck out to me most was when um, G was sharing the poem about his dad and wondering if he would have wanted a different life than what was available to him as an immigrant trying to provide for his family. And that just it, it seemed like that kind of struck a chord for you as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, my parents were uh, immigrants, uh, small business owners, always working, always working, and never really had a lot of options in their life except to kind of do what they could. And so that totally hit home. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that part of yourself and and sharing your conversations with the guests. Um, it's It's a really special episode, and I'm glad that we get to share it here. Yeah. Thank you, Kristen. Yo, yo, I'm Peter J. Kim, and this is Counter Jam on the Food 52 Podcast Network, where we celebrate culture through two of life's greatest things, food and music. This time, we're taking on Japanese-American food culture, the ups and downs of teriyaki, sushi stereotypes, and the immigrant hustle. And we've got a dynamite lineup. Comedian Yumi Nagashima, hip-hop producer Dan the Automator, and MC G. Yamazawa. This first track that you're hearing comes from G, and damn, it's a banger. It's called North Cack, which is slang for G's home state of North Carolina. To me, this song is a fist bump to hip-hop's essence. Dope groove, soulful lyrics, and ill MC skills. You've got to check out the music video, which was done in one long shot and features G laying it down while strutting down a North Carolina country road. It's so dope. So here's North Cack by G Yamazawa. North Cat, baby, I'm a boss. Yeah. Carolina barbecue sauce with the slaw. I'm the safe, the seller, and the vault. Yeah. 
I'm the best, the effect, and the cause, I'm the law. It's the North Cat, baby, I'm a boss. Carolina barbecue sauce with the slaw. I'm the safe, the seller, and the vault. I'm the best, the effect, and the cause, I'm the law. I'm the truth, man, looking real false. Whenever I hit the booth, I come out to an applause. If I'm talking to my crew, you heard a sudden draw. Yo, I ain't talking to you, stop eavesdropping the ball. I be rocking with y'all, I be off of the wall. A pit bull off the leash, I keep locking my jaws. I see a cop at the mall, I see a cop at the fault. Peter picking a fight, I can see the Viking in y'all. One of my punchlines are where your Viking and off. I know I'm frightening y'all long as a mic is involved. Relocated to Cali, but I ain't liking the smog. I'm a southern north star, I be the light in the dark. Be the right in the wrong, I be the reason the bull city feeds me. Bull city grieves me, bull city needs me. Everywhere I go, I got that bull city greeting. That's why they throw the horns when the bull city sees me. It's the North Cat, baby, I'm a boss. Carolina barbecue sauce with the slaw. I'm the safe, the seller, and the vault. I'm the best, the effect, and the cause, I'm the law. It's the North Cat, baby, I'm a boss. Carolina barbecue sauce with the slaw. I'm the safe, the seller, and the vault. I'm the best, the effect, and the cause, I'm the law. And that was North Cat by G. Yamazawa. Keep the music video on YouTube. You won't regret it. I might not be Japanese-American myself, but I gotta say that the themes of this episode really hit home for me. It might on the surface be about Japanese-American food and identity, but we dig deep into the immigrant experience. As a child of immigrants myself, this is a topic that is deeply personal. And by the way, in this episode, I use the term American to mean North American, since Yumi Nagashima, our first guest, is Canadian. Yumi is a stand-up comedian who has made waves across Canada for her body, <laughs> vulgar, no-holds-barred routine, which shatters any preconceptions you might hold about what a Japanese woman can or should say. Just by way of example, her jokes span talking about her mom's uh, <laughs> bush and comparing uh, her clitoris to edamame. She also loves skewering the often sexist and racist advances she receives from men. So, appropriately enough, we started by talking about how men like to hit on her on the street. When um, I'm like walking on the street in Vancouver, and then when they want to, maybe like they want to get my phone number or like they want to, like, you know, go on a date, like they go like, so like, oh, like, you know, are you Japanese? Like they always make sure that I am Japanese. Are you Japanese? Like I, they always say like, oh, I've learned a little Japanese before, <laughs> or like I I had a Japanese girlfriend before, something like that. Yeah. And then hey, maybe like, maybe we should go for a sushi sometime. Like that's what they always say. <laughs> <laughs> and this works what like nine out of ten times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah without no fail yeah yeah well yeah. you know at least there's a, a point for them making a difference between japanese and chinese and korean so there, there's uh -huh. at least that um, yeah that's true actually uh, i should be impressed <laughs> <laughs> that just speaks more to the, the low bar we have um yeah but um i i would say that there that is the the um the idea of women on the street saying to me, hey, baby, want to go get some kimchi has <laughs> happened to me precisely zero times in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you feel about that? You know, I feel a little left out, honestly. Yeah. 
I mean, look, when they do this, you mean they're just they're just trying to compliment you, you know, put a smile yeah. on your face. Come right. On. Right. Um, right. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I should like evaluate that the effort. Well, it'd be a funny game, right? To stand out on the street and just shout out the like stereotypical food for their culture. Like, yeah. hey, hey, uh, yeah. burritos. Let's go get some burritos. Hey, you. Uh, yeah. uh, how about we uh, get some? Uh, yeah. Uh, shawarma. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, not shawarma hummus or like yeah, my yeah, clothes? Yeah. So <laughs> Let me be clear. Under no circumstances should you ever A, hit on someone walking by, B, lead off any greeting to a stranger with, hey baby, or C, try to guess what kind of food they want to eat based on what they look like. I mean, really, what's the end game here? Do they really expect someone to stop in their tracks and say, hey, you know what? I'd really love some sushi with you random guy in the street who just heckled me. Anyway, back to Yumi's favorite stereotypes. I don't like when people assume like, oh, like Japanese lady, you must be like so innocent, submissive. <laughs> yeah. And then like, so like caring and loving. That's, that's the stereotype <laughs> or like expectation almost. They have like, I... No, not all Japanese ladies are like that. Like, we have personalities. Yeah, and you're like, I'm actually full of hate. Yeah, especially right now. Be like full of rage. <laughs> yeah, and anger. Yeah, and a bit bitterness. Yeah, yeah. I'm incredibly <laughs> selfish. I don't care about other people. I hate yeah. everybody and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give me the space to be a badass. Yeah, yeah. not not a saint. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, do you feel that this this stereotype has informed the way you do your comedy as well? Yeah, I think so. When I feel like I had put in a container, it's like my instinct is to always like break the container. So like, yeah, I think it's what to do with it. Yeah. Yes, this has always been a rule I've lived by too. When people box you in, break the damn box. Back when I would MC, I loved being able to walk up to a crowd, have them all assume I was some kind of chump who couldn't hold it down on the mic, and then proceed to shatter those expectations. I'd say I, I relished this to such a degree in my younger years that it actually interfered with my own understanding of my Koreanness. Anyway, I digress. It's a topic to be explored on a future episode. I talked to Yumi about the Japanese food she loves cooking at home. I love ozoni. Sometimes we use chicken stock. Sometimes we use like seaweed stock or fish stock. And then put like lots of like seasonal vegetables and then put rice cake in it. Mm. And it's so delicious. And so I saw on Instagram that you made some um, balls. Balls? They did look like very tasty balls. Uh, ah, yes. What were they? <laughs> Yes, okay, octopus balls. Yeah, it's called takoyaki. So a uh, white flour, flour and like some egg. And then we put uh, octopus, but like we didn't have octopus when we were filming the video. So like I put some shrimp and blue cheese. <laughs> It's not very traditional. <laughs> <laughs> and then I put, what else? 
Oh, and then again, sticky rice, of course. I put it there too. <laughs> I think that's kind of a winner. I mean, like shrimp, blue cheese, balls, like I could definitely crush that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're gonna love it. And is it typical to be singing a song while cooking? Oh, it's, it's mandatory, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> you have to sing while you cook, otherwise. You just have to wait. So, <laughs> do you always sing while you cook? Yes, I tend to sing. Yeah. And what kinds of songs do you sing when you're cooking? Ah,、uh, like it's all genres. Like I sometimes sing like、uh, Japanese pop songs, but sometimes I sing Beatles, but sometimes like I sing like、uh, you know like some random stuff. It came to my mind. I make up songs for it. Uh. I have to ask,、uh, and this is just purely personal curiosity. I, you know, you know Japanese city pop, right? The, the genre? No. Oh, okay. So it's, it's something that, well, it's a music form that's actually quite popular, I think, among a certain crowd in the US.、Uh-huh. Um, and the song that kind of launched it was a song called Plastic Love. Ah. You don't know this song, Plastic no, Love? No, I'm not Japanese <laughs> anymore. <laughs> No, like I said, it's, I, I, I suspect it's something that's more popular with non Japanese Americans than with、uh, right, Japanese right. Americans.、Uh-huh. Okay, can you sing it to me, Peter? Oh, oh my God. I don't even know what the lyrics are, but it just gets me. It's, and half, <laughs> half of it's in English, but it's like,、um, it goes. Da, 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 da. Dun, dun, dun. I'm sorry. That's the one part. <laughs> it's like all of the duns are like something that didn't work out. And then there's I'm sorry. Oh man. Yumi has since become part of the Plastic Love fan club. And if you haven't heard the song, then you should too. It's way catchier than my a cappella version, I promise you. <laughs> Before Yumi was an accomplished comic, She started out in Canada like so many immigrants in the service industry. She was a waitress at various Japanese restaurants in Vancouver, where she was struck by the way Japanese food looked in her new hometown. The sashimi is like so much like thicker than like <laughs> <laughs> I see in Japan, like, like just thick. And then we serve, and then usually like We put like tiny bit of like soy sauce just to like enhance the flavor of sashimi. I saw like lots of customers in Canada, they put like crazy amount of soy sauce in a dipping bowl. And it's kind of like <laughs> the fish in soy sauce swimming. For most of my life, this was the food I knew of as Japanese food. Glossy teriyaki chicken, big multi ingredient maki rolls separated by little plastic green dividers, and a big old cup of soy sauce and bright green wasabi, which is usually actually just horseradish masquerading as wasabi. Now, before you scoff at it, and you shouldn't because this version of Japanese food can still be quite delicious, ask yourself, Why did the cuisine morph in these ways? Well, it's likely out of entrepreneurship, immigrant restaurant owners adapting their home cuisine to sell food to new audiences. In other words, it's a product of adaptation. Next, 
we're going to hear firsthand from someone who grew up in a Japanese-American restaurant. North Carolina rapper G. Yamazawa. Stay tuned. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. Before we dig into my conversation with G, I want to play a clip of another one of his songs. You heard North Keck right at the beginning of the show, but this is quite a different kind of song. It has a haunting loop, a thundering beat, and the lyrics speak for themselves. Here is the song, Dining Room, by G Yamazawa. Mama waiting tables, Papa in the kitchen. Emily was hostess, I was doing dishes. We was trying to make a living on the... Come up, I'ma stay true no matter what I do. Raised in a family serving food, just made sure I wasn't in a dining room. Cause mama waiting tables, mama waiting tables. Papa in the kitchen, Papa in the kitchen. Emily was hostess, Emily was hostess. I was doing dishes, we was trying to make a living on the come up, come up, come up. I'ma stay true no matter what I do. Cause I was raised in a family serving food, just made sure I wasn't in a dining room. Mama always had a dream that she could speak English, translating in America. State of mind, never had the capital to be a star in the field. Ended up putting fish on a clean dish. Never felt so defeated. How did she even interpret her feelings? Her mama was dancing, her sister was singing, her husband was hopeful. Mayumi was dreaming. Mayumi was dreaming. I seen her balance ten plates with five fingers. What a talent to be openly sharing your culture with strangers. Slowly but surely, she showed me the way of the shogun. His patience came to Durham, set up shop in the city, serving that maki unagi nigiri, sipping that sake asahi kirin. We be thanking that food. That we eat cause mama waiting tables. Mama waiting tables. Papa in the kitchen. Papa in the kitchen. Emily was hostess. Emily was hostess. I was doing dishes. We was trying to make a living on it. Come up, come up, come up. I'ma stay true no matter what I do. Raised in a family serving food. Just made sure I wasn't in a dining room. In that dining room. In that dining room. Stay away from that dining room. Georgie, come right, What you. are you doing? Get out of that dining room. Why? How many times I gotta tell you? Ooh, damn. That is Dining Room by G. Mazawa. I asked him to tell me about the inspiration behind the song. Yeah, I started out rapping young, and long story short, I kind of fell into poetry in my late teens, early 20s, and just taking it really seriously, mm-hmm. Poetry Slams. And and so through that whole experience of, of Poetry Slams, I got heavy into telling my story, getting into my cultural identity, which was something I never explored uh, in in my art before that. And so I had a yep. a deep um, understanding and kind of like comfortability when it come, came to talking about my, my cultural heritage. And when I started rapping, it was kind of like I hadn't done that with music yet. And when my yep. homie, 
you know, Ben Trill first sent me that beat, um, it it just I felt like I was just in the restaurant, and it was the first time like music mm-hmm. really translated um, an entire experience, and I just knew that that song was going to be about the restaurant, and the restaurant particularly was something that I had never really specifically dove into as far as the poetry was concerned um and what it meant to me and i think how it also um related to the way i treat my art and the way i present myself and present my work to the world it's actually it mirrors my parents so much so yeah i just wanted to kind of write an ode to them and um and it still it still gets me choked up when i hear that beat it's just yeah so i think this is a common sentiment among children of immigrant parents One thing that will always get me choked up, too, is talking about my parents, their hustle, and how they scratched out a living in the U.S. They both came separately on one-way tickets in the 1960s, without much money, without knowing anyone. I mean, they met each other in the U.S. And with the trauma of the Korean War fresh in their minds. Flash forward to the 1980s, I exist, and my parents are small business owners in east-central Illinois. They have Hallmark stores. I spend a lot of time in those stores, and I see, up close, how much heart and soul they put into those greeting cards, those precious moment figurines, those ornaments. I asked G to tell me about his family's restaurant. They opened up in 86, I believe. Um, And uh, yeah, they've been in that, they they at one point had two locations, and... um, you know, originally was like a classic Japanese, you know, joint, um, curry and udon and tempura and, and sushi mm-hmm. and, and bento boxes. And then over the years, um, especially as they've gotten older and in the last, I'd say, eight years, they've they've been doing kaiseki traditional dining. And so it's a course meal and they t- only take reservations and they only serve about four to six people a night. Um, it's a really, really small operation, just my parents and, and one other employee. Um, my mom goes on a kimono and uh, they only work two to three nights a week. And um, they're really they're really in love with it. Um, so, yeah, 34 years strong. And I think they have two more years in them um, and then they're going to move yeah, towards yeah. something else. Yeah. I mean, and when they do, they're going to be like, what do we do with all this yeah. time? <laughs> they're really... Um, it's actually really interesting the way my work and as I've grown and, and have gotten more um, of an audience, it's sort of we both kind of feed off of each other. And I, I, I think that we inspire each other, actually, um, even though mm-hmm. cooking is very far from my skill set and rapping is very far from anything that they understand. I think that we both kind of see each other and, and push each other to just keep keep being sincere and, and doing the best we can. So. Yeah, so one of the things that really struck me about the the music video is, you know, you have that sort of opening shot of the platter with the shrimp and the maki and other things, and this really beautiful, pristine restaurant front, and then you go further back, and you go further back, and then you're in the kitchen, and, you know, it's not a glamorous setting back in the kitchen. And to me, what that, what that said to me was there's sort of a duality of the experience of that restaurant, of being a customer or being on the other side. Um, what was it like? And I know you're saying the restaurant sort of evolved over the years, but what was it like growing up with the family business? Oh, man, it's it's so interesting. I, when you were talking about your family's business, I just, 
um, there's just this element of you feeling so far from any like bigger corporate or just bigger institution of this country where you just are in this, you're in the, your own world for real every day. And, and yeah. I think for me, it was interesting to kind of be going through the worlds in my own head in a way that I'm sure my parents weren't. And, um, you know, it's, it's also interesting the way you learn about people, um, in, in a, in a restaurant setting, um, like, I would watch dishes, right? And it's funny because I talk about it all in the song, but like I wasn't heavy working. Yeah, yeah. I was like 11, 12 years old or a little kid just standing <laughs> yeah. on a crate. But like, yeah. I don't know. You see the way whole bowls of rice get left, you know, and not eaten, you know, and yeah. waste. You know, all you see all this food getting wasted and you feel, you. I see. I used to see the way it made my parents feel. And, um, um, and I don't know what that really says. I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say, but um, there's an yeah. element of 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 pride that comes from the restaurant that you know you do your best and and yeah. um, you know ultimately at the end of the day you're trying to make a living and you're trying to make a check. But how do you do that while maintaining your integrity um, and the love for what you do? Yeah, I mean, and and speaking of, so you were saying that early on the menu was sort of a uh, adapted menu of food that uh, would would appeal to sort of mainstream American taste. Yeah, we had Tar Heel Rolls, um, Blue Devil Rolls, hur- Hurricane <laughs> Wait, Roll. What's, what's, what's a Tar Heel Honestly, Roll? Honestly, I couldn't even tell you. And it's actually really funny. Like, I used to, I was a classic American kid in a lot of ways. And I, I hated yeah. the smell of raw fish. I hated sushi growing yeah. up. And so I couldn't even tell you what was in these rolls as a kid. I really rejected a lot of it. Um <laughs> But uh, but my parents were creative, man, and they understood what kind of tastes and what kind of um, presentations would would sell. Um, and yeah. uh, but also, I thought it was a it's 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 a dope way to adapt and and to feel like you are contributing and you are a part of the community that, that you're in. Um, so yeah, yeah. Were your parents actually culinarily trained before they opened up the restaurant? My dad was. Yeah, um, he had been cooking since he yeah. was eighteen. Um, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was in Florida doing teppanyaki and doing tricks. And apparently he wasn't very popular. Like he wasn't like a likable guy at the restaurant back then. And um, yeah. So he liked it. Isn't teppanyaki all about the show? Yeah. Shit, I mean, teppanyaki is such an American thing. It's funny. You know, I was in Japan yeah. and they're just like, you know, they're like, that is not a, that's not a thing. Well, that's what I was saying. Is like, I think of Jap- Japan and Japanese culture and you feel like generally things are kind of understated. And you think about teppanyaki and it's like so over the top, like I'm, I'm catching a flaming shrimp in my like hat or whatever. You know, know. what I mean? It's dope um, though. I think it's, you know, it makes sense in a way. Like what did you have for like family meal at the restaurant? Teriyaki, a lot of teriyaki, man. And it's funny, like I just yeah. moved back. And so they've been teaching me how to make it, which is some shit I should have been learned how to make a long time ago. <laughs> man, I'm burning the hell out of the chicken. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but yeah, teriyaki and karage, like fried chicken. Um, I love tempura growing up as well. Um, yeah, those were the, the go-tos. Yakimeshi fried rice. Yeah. So I got to ask then, so what is, what is the, what is the Yamazawa technique for teriyaki then? Man, throw the chicken in, season that mug, throw the meat in and the soy, soy sauce in there and <laughs> just get it going, man. It's, it's, it's simple as fuck. It's just the easiest, um, easiest shit ever, but it, it's just so comforting, man. 
I, I feel it's like that that combo of like sugar and yeah. soy that just it's like a magic thing. Okay, hungry uh, right now, man. Just, yeah, yeah. So about teriyaki, it turns out that Yumi has a pretty different perspective on teriyaki. In Nagashima family hold, like we never had teriyaki. You never had teriyaki. Never. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like no, we don't have like teriyaki sauce or yeah. anything at home. Well, what did you like, eat? Then? Uh, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I know. It's like Western people love teri- teriyaki sauce. The joys and woes of teriyaki sauce aside. For many immigrant households, especially ones in which the parents are working nonstop, often the work of transferring cultural knowledge falls to the grandparents. You have a, a poem that really moved me, which is called Dear Grandma. And you refer to, a, you make a lot of references to her cooking and that and her feeding you. Wait, was she, was she, she was living with you? Did she come from Japan? Like what side of the family was she from? Yeah, so the, the, my grandma, my mom's mom. Um, in that poem, mm-hmm. and uh, she was here for the last fifteen years of her life, and so, mm-hmm. um, and that for me was like end of middle school, all through through high school, and into the poetry and um, early twenties, and um, you know, she was here originally for my mom to be able to take care of her. Um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, right. and of course, there was this like mutual mutual understanding of her being able to help out as much as she can as well, um, and so. Yeah, man, she was, as I was getting into poetry and even at the time in the poetry experience where I realized I hadn't ever written anything about my culture, um, mm-hmm. the piece about my grandma was the first time I kind of like realized like, wow, what a what a privilege um, and what a special thing to be able to like live with my grandma, this walking, you know, um, uh yeah, piece of my my history and my culture and my lineage. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and for it to be a really kind of simple but profound thing um, to wake up to and go to sleep with every night. And your grandma, did she cook a lot at home then? Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing also, just when my parents run in a restaurant, like they were never home, man, yeah. growing up. You know, right. they never were. They were yeah, just yeah. working six, seven days a week. And so, um, right, right. yeah, my grandma just whip up. Something whenever you know, grandma just whenever you hungry, man, they just they get it going, and so um, yeah. Can you remember some things that she would make for you, man? Rice balls, like like you know, yakimeshi, yeah. just simple stuff. She could fry up chicken, and again, it was a real, <laughs> a real bare bones menu for me. You know, I just mainly yeah. chicken, beef, rice, um, in any iteration. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I had a, a a grandma who also came over to take care of me while my parents were also working their asses off at the Hallmark store. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my grandma also made a lot of amazing Korean food for me, but like what I associated her the most with was the way she made Kraft Mac and cheese. <laughs> because there was like, there was my mom's version of Kraft Mac and cheese, which was the box of Mac and cheese and like a little milk and like the tiniest sliver of butter. Uh-huh. And then there's a Kraft Mac and cheese that my brother would make for me. And that had like a proper like knob of butter in it. And then there was a Kraft mac and cheese that my grandma would make for me. And that was like, take the whole damn steak and just throw it in. And it's like, because why not, right? I mean, you got it. And so (laughs) it was just like, oh, my God, like grandma mac and cheese is just the best. That's fire. That's so fire. 
G grew up in a community that was decidedly not Japanese American. I asked him how he felt people perceived him. Maybe there's these mental blocks in my own head where I tried my best to just block out any sense of of Asian identity as as a kid, and I just tried my best to just um, fit in. That yeah, um, you know that I, that I try to not acknowledge it. But yeah, you build this sort of um, you know you get called Chinese so much that you you <laughs> catch yourself like having this attitude towards Chinese folks yourself. Cause you're just like, yo, I'm not Chinese. You know, I'm just, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you have this internal conflict. Um, even though you actually don't have no problem with Chinese folks, yeah. China for nothing, but it, yeah, yeah. Um, you sort of take on. And I think that's a, that's a difficult thing about the beast, you know? Um, yeah. And, and so, um, yeah. And at the same time, just trying to, trying to balance just the pride of of it all is is a difficult thing for a kid. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, I I grew up in the Midwest and I also similarly when I was a kid didn't really put my sort of Koreanness out there and if anything like you I was just like trying to fit in. But there are all these moments that come up that really remind you sometimes in a pretty harsh way that you are actually a little different. Um, you know, the number of times kids would do that whole like Chinese, Japanese, dirty knees, look at these. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever got that on the playground. Of course. Um, and then I remember I, re- I have this really distinct memory of this one kid. Um, his name was Moses. He came up to me on the playground and he said, yo, man, like your face looks like it was hit by a truck. Man. And I was like, uh, and then I remember looking in the mirror afterwards, like kind of like touching my face. I'm like, oh man. Yeah. Like it's, mm. it's like flatter and like different and you know, mm. Um, so it's like, you always get these little reminders, I feel like, um, Mm -hmm. of your, of your differentness. It just is like, you just want to be taken seriously. Um, and it's really hard to, to get there. Like to, you really hope and pray that, that people will want to know or find out more about who you are as a person beyond what you look like. And I yeah. think that that's that goes for anybody who looks or seemingly is different from from the norm. And I think what's great about it, though, is that it really makes you ask yourself, like, who who are you? Who am I? And, and what who do I want to be? Well, one of your lyrics that really hit me hard from Dining Room, I'm going to read it. It was seen him put a knife through a sea of dead dreams. Oh, but the life force that the dead brings slave to the work, want to be set free made me wonder would he resent me and I, I don't know what about it that was but just like man I wanted to ask you know if if you're open to it just to unpack that a little you know what what you meant by that man that part is the the, the heaviest part for me to actually yeah, <laughs> talking yeah. about that song um yeah I think it's just I'm really in it exploring my pops and I'm exploring what what it's like, what it was could have been like for him to Mm -hmm. sort of resort to the knife and to the cooking, Um, you know, sort of wondering, like, were there other dreams that you, you know, that you wanted to pursue? Were there other things that you would have enjoyed more that you were more passionate about besides cooking and you know, and and ultimately, kind of like I am, me being his his child and his family, and needing to provide for his family. You know, if 
if you could do it over again and you didn't have to worry about kids or putting food on a table, would you have experimented and tried some other shit? And, 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 you know, it's sort of, so it's about, you know, exploring him and, and whether this is something that is, yeah. Was there other things out there that, that you wish you could have done as opposed to, to being in here cooking? Yeah. Cause it's like in a lot of ways their, their life kind of drove them to do things, you know, one after another. It's not like there was the ability to just be like, I want to be a painter. So I'm going to do that, you know? Um, so I feel you, man. You know, I think it's, um, it's, it's crazy to think that they just never had the option mm-hmm. to, to pursue those endeavors. Mm-hmm. But I think the, <clears throat> oh, but the life force that the dead brings is like, yeah, this is the, the way that something, maybe this dead dream could have been the sustaining force that allow, you know, there's all these other possibilities and life to sort of yeah. recur. Um, and so, yeah. Ooh, it's heavy shit, man. Papa always had a dream, but I never really knew. He couldn't remember, so I never had a clue. He never had a friend, no ace, boom, cool. Guess I got left in his hometown, too. Now he had to take a job that he didn't really choose. Had a strong voice that he couldn't really use. That's why immigrants be cooking that food. It's the only way to communicate with you. Seen him put a knife through a sea of dead dreams. Oh, but the life force that the dead brings. Slave to the work when I be set free. Make me wonder would he reset me. Ooh, yeah. Heavy stuff indeed. I took it a few steps further with Dan Nakamura, a.k.a. Dan the Automator, a Japanese-American producer who reshaped the sounds of hip-hop with his avant-garde work with Gorillaz, Handsome Boy Modeling School, Dr. Octagon, and Deltron 3030, all groups that I love. Dan grew up in San Francisco, and he ate Japanese food, but unlike Yumi and G, for him... It wasn't the focus. You know, if, if you grow up in a, um, a traditional Korean or a Chinese household, you know, you're probably like, you know, eat, eat, you got kimchi marinating on the side. You know, these things, you know, like we, yeah. we didn't have that. So what's one key difference between Dan's family's history and the stories of G, whose parents immigrated, and Yumi, who immigrated herself? It's not pretty. I'm, I'm Japanese American, but I'm also like third and a half generation essentially. So my uh, my great grandfather came here, and like grandparents were born well in Hawaii. Not, oh, actually, right. sorry, I think one couple were born in Los Angeles and went back to Hawaii. But anyway, Hawaii, L.A. And the reason I mentioned that is a to give the generational generation part, but also to mention you know they were all in internment camps in World War II. Right. And um, Japanese Americans. Um, my experience is, and, and it's not my parents' experience, because when I talk to them about this, they don't agree with me, but I I'm, I think being imprisoned made, and they were like very little, like, you know, two, three years old or whatever, but being imprisoned, um, they, they subverted the culture a lot growing up and into life, you know what I mean? So like, mm-hmm. I, I find the Japanese community more than like, say, Korean or Chinese or whatever to have subverted the um, actual Japanese culture, at least the Japanese American ones. Um, that being said, of course, you know, there, there's a lot of culture involved. It's just not in the same traditional way you might find in other, other um, ethnic groups. Right. So actually, could you explain that a bit more? What do you mean by subverting Japanese culture? Like I said, this is only my opinion. <laughs> if you ask my parents yeah, or someone, they'll say no. But like, um, it's like they, they, they worked very hard to be very American. You know what I mean? And yeah. um, it's not like, oh, you can't have Japanese food or we can't. Well, none of them spoke. My parents don't even speak Japanese really that much. I mean, my mom doesn't at all. My dad 
knew because his mom spoke it, but like it was never like a language being spoken. But even I'm saying in the other households of people I, I knew mm-hmm. growing up, the, the, the grandparents to the parents sometimes spoke the language, but not really the kids to the parents, you know? Right. Um, and I, I think personally, like there was a lot of like, you know, you don't want to like two things. You don't want to like stick out too much or you might get chopped off. But also like, right. you know, you know, ethnically, I don't think you want to like, fly that flag too hard you know you can go to jail my parents grew up separately in in chicago but but they um chicago actually has a very big japanese population because um oh the other thing i should mention is japanese don't talk about shit so like we we don't we learn all this stuff like when someone dies or something right but like what we learned is um in the camps they would let you leave the camps i think it was like 10 months to a year early if you agreed to move away from the coast so that's how all these people ended up in Chicago. So yeah, this is your not-so-friendly reminder that our country incarcerated at least 120,000 Japanese Americans in concentration camps for four years from 1942 to 1946, a horrific act that was ordered by then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This is not ancient history by any means. I mean, we're talking about Dan's parents here. I'll admit, I never considered one consequence of this, the chilling effect on culture. Dan's story is anecdotal, of course, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were other Japanese Americans who suppressed their culture after experiencing this. I don't think my mom or even my dad really ever learned to like be making Japanese food food. You know what I mean? Like they, 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 they know the parts of it that they knew. You know what I mean? A lot of folks who are fans of Dan, such as myself, may not have ever considered Dan as a Japanese American musician. He's just known as an insanely talented beat producer. And Dan spoke to this. Asians, and I'm not saying this in a negative way, it's a positive way, but they really want to embrace their own and, and make it be their own. Yeah. And, and by doing so and playing into that, you kind of make your own glass ceiling mm-hmm. in, in arts. Not in everything. Uh, it's, it's like a club that you are happy to be a part of and it's a club that also doesn't want you to leave the club. I totally know um, that, yeah. So when I was doing my stuff, I didn't want to be the best... Japanese guy or the best Asian guy. I want to be the best, period. I asked each of our guests my favorite little question, what their desert island Japanese dish would be. Here's Dan's. It would actually be sushi. You get like the, the rice, plus you get the clean fish thing and like, you know, uh, and it, it has to have real wasabi though. So if I, if I have to eat that all the time, we need that, you know? When I asked G, he lit up and he knew right away. Man, probably chicken teriyaki, man. Probably just a good old, just a big thing of rice (laughs) and just get it in, man. Yumi's was a little more elaborate. I know this secret weapon. Japanese bento box. Uh (laughs) That's cheating. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. There's like really perfectly cooked white rice. And then there's like tofu and seaweed miso soup. And then there's like a tiny portion of potato salad just to change the flavor palette once in a while. And then there's like uh, this grilled barbecue sardine on the plate, just like whole fish. Boom. And then there's like um, grated radish and then lemon. Mm. Lemon juice that you can squeeze, like lemon juice. And then you cover it with teriyaki sauce and dip the whole thing in, in soy sauce. <laughs> right? 
Yeah, yeah, just to get rid of all the flavor, you know. <laughs> We're going to close things out with a track from Dan the Automator that might surprise you. It's called Close to You by the group Gotta Girl. And it's not so much hip hop as it is 1960s French pop. Crazily enough, Gotta Girl was a collaboration between Dan and the actress Mary Elizabeth Winstead. The album it appears on is called I Love You, But I Must Drive Off This Cliff Now. I love Mary's breathy vocals on top of Dan's lush soundscape. It's a perfect way to round things out for the show. Enjoy Close to You by Gotta Girl. to our guests Yumi Nagashima, G Yamazawa, and Dan the Automator. Shout out to G, Dan, and Gotta Girl for providing the music for the episode. Shout out to the Food 52 team and especially Coral Lee, the all seeing eye who makes the magic happen. If you like the show and you want to hear more, give it a friendly review and subscribe. It really helps. I'm Peter J. Kim, and I'll catch you on the next episode of Counter Jam. <laughs>